The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Anyone need one? It's okay if you don't have one. Everyone got one? Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is page 235 in the Red Bible and page 312 in the Children's Bible. If you're not here last week, let me just recap because it's important to understanding today's passage. Last week we saw King Saul had a crystal clear mission from God, which was to save Israel from their enemies, most notably the Philistines. King Saul delays his mission for two years, and so in the void of his leadership, his son, Jonathan, attacks a garrison of Philistines. In the victory, Jonathan arouses this Philistine giant. And so Saul gathers the Israeli military together at Gilgal, as instructed by the prophet Samuel two years prior. And when they are there, the Philistine troops start coming in, and they keep coming and coming and coming. And as a result, the Israeli troops start fleeing and fleeing and fleeing. They hide in caverns, in cisterns. They even hide in graves. Some of them even run across the Jordan River. They are so afraid. At the end of last week's passage, we saw how King Saul was left at Gilgal with 600 trembling men. And instead of waiting for the prophet Samuel to come and pronounce a blessing and direction from the Lord, as well as to make a sacrifice before the Lord, King Saul takes matters into his own hands. He oversteps his bounds as king, and he makes a sacrificial offering himself. And then when the prophet Samuel comes, instead of repenting, King Saul seeks to justify his decision, blaming everyone except for himself. But the prophet Samuel was not fooled. He rebukes Saul's foolishness and pronounces that his kingly line will die with him and that the Lord will replace him with another man, a man after God's own heart. And so that is the context into which we are reading today. And so let's read together. We're going to read from 1315 all the way through 1422 today. But for now, we're just going to read 1315 through, through verse 23. So let's start 1 Samuel 13, verse 15 through 22. And Samuel, the prophet, arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shua, Another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. 
And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Lord, so often we try to find truth by our own methods, by our own means, and we look in in places other than what you have given to us. And so, God, we thank you by your grace you have given us the story of your people that we might identify with them and have the hope that they have and have the faith that they have for your glory. And we pray that would happen today through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Webster Dictionary defines adversity as a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. Again, adversity is a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. I think it would be fair to state that Israel was facing adversity. Israel had just ticked off the Philistines, and the Philistines responded with a military of at least 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and then, the, and then it says earlier, in troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And as a result, the Israeli army had dwindled down to 600 very frightened men. The Philistine military was now encamped at Michmash, which was only two miles away from Gibeah, where the Israelite army was stationed. The Philistines sent out three raiding armies in three different directions, and the purpose of that was, was multifold to tighten their grip upon the Israelites. It was to police the territory, to, to pillage the people, also to control the major routes, to, to, to protect from any surprise attacks. But, but the worst part was they were blocking off any potential reinforcements from the north for the army of Israel. And then to make matters worse, Israel only had two weapons, two metal weapons for their whole military, which belonged to Saul and Jonathan. And then the worst of all things is that Israel's prophet, Israel's spokesman from God, Samuel, just denounced the king and walked away, leaving Israel without guidance on how to defeat the Philistines. I think Israel is facing adversity. Some of you are here today facing tremendous adversity. Like the Israelites, you feel like you're in a battle that has no potential for success. Maybe you have been abandoned by a loved one and you are bitter and angry. Maybe you have been slandered by a friend and you feel betrayed. Maybe you are under a pile of debt and you feel like there is no way out. Maybe your children are wearing you down with their rebellion and you are wondering, will it ever end? Maybe you are limited by your physical abilities. All of us either are 
or will face extreme adversity. I read a quote this week. I'm not sure who it's by, but it says this. The notion that adversity makes one stronger is a myth. Growth comes not from the experience of adversity, but rather from the response to it. 1 Samuel 13 shows us the adversity Israel is facing. It reminds us of the adversity that we are facing. But today's sermon is not about adversity. Today's sermon is about our response to adversity. You see, although most of us try to avoid adversity at all costs, what will be on display for us today in terrific fashion is that for the people of God, adversity is an opportunity for audacious faith. Let me say it again. Adversity is an opportunity for audacious faith. James 1.4 says it like this. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, adversities. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Adversity, your adversity, is an opportunity for audacious faith. Today we are going to uncover four characteristics of audacious faith in the midst of adversity. The first characteristic is this. Audacious faith discerns God's will. Again, remember the desperation of the situation that Israel is in, how overwhelmed they are by Philistine troops. And let's read verse 1 through 3 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying with staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Throughout chapters 13 and 14, we see this Striking contrast between King Saul and his son, Jonathan. Thinking of last week's sermon outline, Jonathan will live out the mission of God courageously, unlike Saul does. Jonathan will live out his mission obediently, unlike Saul does. Jonathan will live out his mission heartily for the Lord, unlike Saul does. We will see that Saul's son, Jonathan, is a man after God's own heart. That the son, Jonathan, is a man that his dad, Saul, was supposed to be. And so one day, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, let's go over and let's pick a fight with the Philistines, with the Philistine garrison, this encampment. And Jonathan goes without telling his father because he knows his father is a man who has no audacious faith. He knows his father will create all of these reasons on why Jonathan should not go. And so Jonathan does not tell his father that he's going over. And so Jonathan 
goes without telling his dad. And what we see here is as Jonathan surrounds himself with, with his armor bearer who goes with him, Saul surrounds himself with the priests from the lineage of Eli. Now the problem with this, of choosing this man to be their chaplain, of choosing Ahijah as a priest, is that this is the child of an extremely wicked line of priests. If you remember earlier in 1 Samuel, that God had rebuked Eli and his children, and he had actually put to death Phineas and his brother because of their extraordinary wickedness. But Jonathan gathers together with his armor bearer to go out in faith. Look at verse four. It says, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag. A crag is a steep or rugged cliff. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And so we actually have a picture of this rocky crag. And so you can see how difficult it would be to climb down and climb up the other side. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer are on one side and the Philistine encampment is on the other side. It continues saying, the name of one crag was Bozes, which means slippery. And the name of the other, Senna, which means thorny, even less fun than slippery. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Okay, and so now we also have another picture of an aerial shot. And so Geba is over there in the left. And then here you see Bo Bozes and Senna, the cliffs over here. And the Philistines were over here in Michmash. And what you can see is at the top of these cliffs, there is kind of a plain where maybe the Philistine military encamped. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer are on this side, and the Philistine garrison is on the other side, if you can picture it. And so they would have to crawl down one side and then crawl up the other to get to them. Verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Let's dig into these two verses a little bit because there is a lot there. There's four quick things I want to point out. The first is this. Notice what Jonathan calls the Philistines. Jonathan calls them the uncircumcised. The people of God had his sign put upon them, just like the sign of baptism is put upon the people of God today. The people of God at that time was put on them a sign of circumcision. And so when Jonathan is calling them the uncircumcised, what is happening is Jonathan's acknowledging that this is not just a physical battle, but it is a spiritual battle with the enemies of God. The second thing I want to point out to you is notice how although Jonathan is excited to go and defeat the Philistines, he does not presume upon God's will or God's grace. Jonathan does not say, the Lord will work for us. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. You know, so often people think audacious faith binds God to fulfill our desires. So often we think that we bind God by the passions that are put on our heart to do what, he want, we, what we want him to do. But Jonathan acknowledges here that it may not be God's will to work for them 
in this situation. We'll get back to that again later. The third thing I want to show you here is notice the source of Jonathan's faith. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is one of those quotes that you want to have tattooed on your arm, right? It's just, it's an awesome statement of faith. Jonathan acknowledges that 10 troops or 10,000 troops, it doesn't matter because their battle is not against the Philistines. That it is the Lord that will give them deliverance. And so he is dependent upon God. And the fourth thing I want to point out here quickly is although Saul partnered up with a corrupt priestly family, again, you see here that Jonathan partners up with another man after God's own heart. One who will say, let's go, I'm in. And it reminds us that we must choose carefully those that we go on mission with. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. What's happening here? Well, as much as it may seem that Jonathan is recklessly running into battle, we see that he's actually doing the opposite. Jonathan is not presuming on God's will, but Jonathan is seeking to discern God's will. He says, if we show ourselves and the Philistines come down to us, We'll just stay where we're at. We'll take care of them. We'll go back. But if they say, come up to us and we'll show you a thing or two, then we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. You see, Jonathan, in the midst of audacious faith, is still humbly seeking to discern whether or not this attack on the Philistine garrison is God's will or just his youthful zeal. You see, we not only have a God that calls us to audacious missions, we also have a God that confirms us to audacious missions. We saw this in the case of Saul as well. When he was called to go and defeat the Philistines, not only was he anointed by the prophet Samuel, but he was given three very specific signs to confirm the mission and the calling in his life. Last week, I quoted Pastor Randy Pope, who says, attempt something so big for God that unless God is in it, it is doomed to failure. Again, this is not a call to recklessness, but it is a call to audaciousness. I think too often Christians marry this idea. They marry the idea that audacious faith should be reckless faith. But there's a very clear difference. Audacious faith says, I'm going to step out in faith and let God use me to do amazing things. But reckless faith says, I'm going to step out in faith and let God use me to do amazing things. And I don't care what anybody else says. Let me give you a scenario. What if I came to you over lunch? We were sitting down for lunch or for coffee. And I said, you know what? God has put a new mission on my heart, a new mission on my life. I'm going to step down as a pastor of Jacob's Well, and I'm going to become a country singer. I'm going to become a country singer for Jesus. 
If you don't know me very well, you'll probably smile and nod. And I'll go on talking about how I love singing and how it gets me so excited and how I enjoy it so much. And I do it to the praise of God, to enjoy God. But if you know me and you love me and you have half a backbone, you will say, Dan, for the sake of your children, for the sake of my children, for the sake of everything good in the world, don't go. Keep on, keep your day job. See, reckless would faith say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do it anyways. But audacious faith seeks out counsel, seeks out to discern God's word. And we can discern God's word through godly people in our lives who will speak to us lovingly and courageously and honestly. But here's the trick. You got to listen to him. <laughs> you got to listen to him. He also directs us certainly by putting passions on our heart, but also through his word, he shows us what to do and he provides resources and opportunities for us to use those gifts. And so God is calling us to audacious faith, not a reckless faith. And audacious faith seeks to discern God's mission. Secondly, audacious faith fulfills God's mission. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, So both of them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrisons hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing, a thing or two, we would say. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And the first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, within as it were half a furlough's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp in the field. And among all the people, the garrison and even raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. You can imagine how tired you or I would be from crawling down the one cliff and crawling up the next. And yet, as they get to the top, maybe with arrows being hurled at them, in the space of a half an acre, probably the size of many of your yards, these two men with audacious faith, kill 20 trained and armed Philistines. This news spreads throughout the Philistine camp that just two Israeli men killed off 20 trained Philistines. And the people are scared. They panic. They tremble. And then the earth trembles. The earth quakes. You see, the earthquake confirmed what the Philistines were fearing, that the God of Israel was bigger than their gods. This simple truth that the Lord is greater than all other gods struck fear into the Philistines, but gave courage to Jonathan and to his armor bearer to audaciously fulfill their humanly impossible mission. John Knox, who's a famous theologian who was reduced to a galley slave for preaching the gospel, but then later 
courageously led the Scottish Reformation, once notably said this. He said, one man with God is always a majority. I love that line. One man with God is always a majority. This isn't just true for Jonathan. It's true for you. The first main point to discern God's will is a warning to those who might move faster than God and are reckless in their service of God. But this main point is a warning to those who move slower than God, who are lethargic in their service to God for whatever reason. Maybe they're lethargic because you want too much information. You want literal billboards to tell you what to do. We call this paralysis by analysis. If this describes you, I'd like to recommend a book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. The description on Amazon.com says this, Pastor and best-selling author Kevin DeYoung counsels Christians to settle down, make choices, and do the hard work of seeing through choices. Too often, he writes, God's people tinker around with churches, jobs, and relationships, worrying that they haven't found God's perfect will for their lives. Or even worse, they do absolutely nothing, stuck in a frustrated state of paralyzed indecision, waiting, waiting, waiting for clear, direct, unmistakable direction. But God doesn't need to tell us what to do at each fork in the road. He already revealed his plan for our lives, to love him with our whole hearts, to obey his word, and after that, to do what we like. And then it ends like this saying, no need for hocus pocus, no reason to be directionally challenged. Just do something. Maybe you are lethargic because like King Saul, you are so afraid. You are afraid of the enemy, afraid you will lose your life, afraid that you will lose your comfort. Maybe you're lethargic because you are overcome with shame in your own life and you think God could never use me. But in the words of Pastor Kevin DeYoung, just do something. Audacious faith fulfills God's mission. The third characteristic we see of audacious faith is that it emboldens God's people. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Saul sees here an opportunity. The Philistines are on the run, and so he prepares his troops to go into battle. And part of the preparation is to bring in the chaplain, to bring in the priest Ahijah. And this is part of what was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 20, 4 through 5, that as they would go into battle that they would call together the people and the priests would pronounce this charge and this benediction. It's in Deuteronomy 20, 1 through 4. I'll read it. It should be on the screen as well. 
says this, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, check, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, here's the command, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Again, we see here a mandate that the people of God, by the priest of God, would be encouraged to put their faith in God for the victory. The second reason why Saul brings the priest, the chaplain, Ahijah, is because Ahijah is wearing an ephod, and the ephod is kind of a vest that is worn in the front, and inside the Ephod is the Urim and Thummim, which are two stones that were ordained by God. They're lots that were used to discover God's will. And so Saul calls the priest for these two reasons, but then Saul does the unthinkable. Again, like Saul did in last chapter, Saul oversteps his bounds. In verse 19, we read that there was a tumult, a turmoil in the camp of the Philistines. And Saul does not want to lose this golden opportunity. And so he tells the priest to withdraw his hand from the ephod. Saul is saying, I don't want to know God's will. I'm going to do what I want to do. And even worse, Saul is refusing to wait and receive the blessing of God. Again, we see a stark contrast between a godless king, Saul, and a godly son, Jonathan. Verse 20, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. That verse right there tells me that maybe, possibly, Saul and the military didn't need to go into battle. And if they waited, they would have known that because the Philistines were fighting one another. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Do you see the result of one man's audacious faith in the midst of adversity. Do you see it? Jonathan's audacious faith not only strikes fear into God's enemies, but it emboldens God's people. Jonathan's audacious faith emboldens his armor bearer in verse 7 to say, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan's audacious faith emboldens the Israelites in hiding to come out of their holes and fight hard in battle. Jonathan's audacious faith even emboldens Hebrews that have converted to the Philistine nation to convert back and fight against the Philistines. You see, audacious faith is a contagious faith. Audacious faith in the midst of adversity emboldens the faith of God's people. Probably one of the best examples of this 
happened last year. Some of you have heard the name Dylan Roof. Dylan is a white supremacist who on June 17th of last year walked into a prayer service at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and murdered nine African Americans. In his first court appearance via teleconference, he stood there with a blank face and two policemen behind him. He stood there and the judge called forward representatives of the deceased to come and speak to Dylan. The first was Nadine Collier, daughter of victim Ethel Lance. And she says, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. And if God forgives you, I forgive you. The next person comes up, relative of Myra Thompson. She says, I would just like him to know that to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your ways. So no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. The next one again proclaims mercy on the one who had murdered their family member. And then the next one again proclaims mercy and forgiveness on the one who had murdered their family member. You can imagine this being the most gut-wrenching adversity that anyone would ever face. And yet, they understood the gospel. And they understood this as an opportunity for audacious faith. An opportunity to forgive and grant mercy to a man who had murdered their most beloved and cherished possessions on this earth. And this was an opportunity for a contagious faith. I do not know who was the first one in that congregation to say, we must forgive this man. But you can see it spread throughout the congregation, but also spread throughout the country. I know it spread to me. As I heard these words of forgiveness granted to this murder, I thought to myself, if they can forgive him, how could I withhold forgiveness from the people who have hurt me? You see, audacious faith in the midst of adversity is a contagious faith, and it emboldens God's people. Finally, I'm running a little long. Grant me a little grace. Audacious faith acknowledges God's victory. Just side note, Trish said all my sermons are three main points. So audacious faith, I did four main points. Here you go. Verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Although the Lord never swung a sword, although the Lord never threw a punch, although the Lord never shot an arrow, it is very clear throughout this chapter that the victory belongs to the Lord. It was the Lord who gave Jonathan in an audacious faith in the midst of a father's faithlessness. It was the Lord who put on Jonathan's heart to go and attack the Philistines. It was the Lord who encouraged Jonathan's armor bearer to go with him wholeheartedly. It was the Lord who confirmed to Jonathan through their calling out to him that the Lord was going to give them victory. It was the Lord who shook the earth in the midst of battle. It was the Lord who sent the Philistines into a great panic. It was the Lord who turned the Philistine swords against one another. You see, the Lord could have saved Israel that day without Jonathan, but Jonathan could not save Israel without the Lord. 
Again, there is a stark contrast. If you look earlier in chapter 13, when Jonathan defeats a garrison of Philistines, Saul sends out word and he tells everybody that Saul, not Jonathan, not the Lord, but that Saul has defeated the Philistines. Saul is stealing credit for the Lord's victory. But then we get to chapter 14 and we see Jonathan, this great contrast. In verse 6, he says, It may be that the Lord will work for us today, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Verse 10, For the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 12, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Do you see the difference between these two men? King Saul sees the battle merely as physical and so craves credit for himself. But Jonathan knows the battle is more than physical, it is spiritual, and so acknowledges that victory belongs to the Lord. When I was in my senior year of seminary, I was applying for a position up here at New Hope Church, and one of the questions on the application is, what is Reformed theology? If you don't know what it is, that's okay, but they ask, what is Reformed theology? And then there's this big space to enter the answer. But I had to go because I had to stay for a test. And so I simply put what I believe is a summary of Reformed theology, and it is this. God is always the hero. That's it. God is always the hero of every story throughout Scripture, but also every story in your life. If your marriage is rocky, but it's on the upswing, it probably took a lot of hard work, but the hero of your marriage is God who gave you the perseverance to stick with it. If you have been battling a repetitive sinful action or attitude in your life and you have just an ounce of freedom, again, this probably took a lot of hard work, but the hero of your freedom is God who gave you the heart of repentance and conviction and determination. If you run into a burning house to save a child, that takes a lot of courage. But the hero of that child is God who had given you the courage to do that. You see, in all of these stories, God could gain victory without you, but you could never gain victory without God. And so audacious faith acknowledges God as a hero and victor of every story. Let me end with this. My favorite Bible commentator is a guy named James Montgomery Boyce. If you've ever read his commentaries, you probably agree with me to a certain extent. He's a phenomenal commentator, very pastoral. He's the only commentary that I purchased all of his commentaries from what I know. This week, I came across a story of James Montgomery Boyce that I had never heard before and honestly made me love him all the more. On Good Friday of the year 2000, James Montgomery Boyce was diagnosed with aggressive pancreatic cancer, and he was given only six weeks to live. And after being diagnosed with liver cancer, 61-year-old Dr. Boyce addressed the congregation at 10th Presbyterian Church concerning how to pray. And he says this, A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although, a miracle, so although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. 
And then he goes on to instruct them to pray for the doctors and then finishes with this. He says, above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father 10 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. I'm guessing many of you here today are like me and struggling to believe that your current adversity is an opportunity for audacious faith. And I would point us to Dr. Boyce, who points us to the cross. You see, the cross was the greatest adversity of human history. In Luke 24, we read that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then he sweat like drops of blood because of the overwhelming adversity. You see, not only was the creator, Jesus, going to be betrayed by his creation, not only was he going to die that night, not only was he going to die for the sins of one person, but he was going to take the cup of God's wrath for all people of all nations who trust in him. And yet... Jesus came to endure this single adversity so he could have a marvelous opportunity to gather you to himself. You see, it is through Christ's greatest adversity that you are given the greatest opportunity. The payment of your debt, the forgiveness of your sins, resurrection from the dead, life eternal with God, a relationship with Jesus forever, and none of this is possible without the adversity that was put upon Jesus Christ. If you have not seized this opportunity yet, let me encourage you today to trust in Christ for your salvation. Final thought, not only is adversity an opportunity for audacious faith, but I think the cross declares to us the greater the adversity, the greater the opportunity for audacious faith. And the greater the opportunity for audacious faith, the greater the opportunity to reveal the glory and majesty of God. Adversity is an opportunity for audacious faith. An audacious faith discerns the will of God. It fulfills God's mission. It emboldens God's people. And it proclaims God's victory for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us to come and to give thanks for all of the trials in our life. And so we come to give thanks for the adversities in our life, for the trials in our life, knowing that in those adversities, you are doing something beautiful. And Lord, we confess that often we do not see it that way. Often we seek to, to, to run away from it as fast as possible. But God, pray that you would give us the audacious faith in the midst of the adversity to glorify you in all things. Lord, as we turn to your table, again, we are reminded that the adversity that you face on our behalf at the cross is what led to our salvation. And we praise you for that. God, pray as we take these elements that we be reminded of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.